When I was at school, uh, I was very frustrated by um, the choices we were kind of asked to make. Um, it was a Shakespeare or the second law of thermodynamics, um, Rubens or relativity, a Debussy or DNA, art or science. Now, at school, I found this demand to try and make a choice between these two um, deeply frustrating. I, when I went up to secondary school, I actually went to school, a comprehensive school in Oxfordshire, just local to here. Um, I started learning the trumpet. Uh, it started playing in orchestras. In fact, um, uh, Peter Neumann, who's here in the audience, uh, rescued me once when I was stranded here in an orchestra and there was no lift home. Drove me all the way back to Henley-on-Thames. So uh, um, uh, I did a lot of theatre um, uh, at school and um, but at the same time as I started learning the trumpet, it was about the time that I uh, fell in love with uh, the world of science and, in particular, um, mathematics. Um, uh, the wonderful power that mathematics has to tell us where we've come from and where we're going to go next. Um, and uh, I seemed to have to make a choice between these two. And I was better at my mathematics than I was at my uh, scales on the trumpet. And so I chose the, the mathematical route. Um, but actually, one of the things I've always enjoyed about Oxford is when I came up here as an undergraduate, um, uh, I found that actually I could still do both. Uh, in fact, I think the college system almost encourages you to uh, spend your time with people doing other disciplines. So I spent a lot of time trying to justify why um, I thought mathematics was as exciting as um, Derrida's deconstruction or um, uh, various other things. And so I kept on doing my music here and my theatre. Um, um, but I went the mathematical route. Uh, uh, became a professor here, but I have always kept my interest in the arts. And as time went on, I began to realize more and more that uh, uh, this idea of the two cultures that uh, C.P. Snow talked about, is, is, it's really a false dichotomy. And in fact, the more and more time I spend um, studying, uh, spending time in the arts, working with art, creative artists, I realize again and again how often um, we're both drawn to very similar sort of structures. Um, so what I want to do in this presentation is to, uh, I've chosen five of my favorite uh, 20th century artists from various different disciplines. And uh, I've called the talk The Secret Mathematicians, because in some sense, I think that these um, artists are a bit like secret mathematicians. They're, they're being drawn, sometimes consciously, but often unconsciously, um, to structures that are of fundamental importance to me as a mathematician. Um, so the first uh, artistic discipline I've chosen is one which has a lot of resonance with mathematics traditionally, which is uh, music. Um, so I've chosen a composer, one of my favorite uh, composers from the 20th century is Olivier Messiaen, um, who was obsessed with mathematical structures as an inspiration for a lot of his work. And in particular, there's one piece that he wrote whilst he was a prisoner of war um, in the Second World War. He was in a prisoner of war camp. Um, and there was a rickety upright piano. Um, there was a clarinetist, a violinist, and a cellist. And he wrote this piece um, called The Quartets for the End of Time. Um, the quartet is meant to kind of represent that, that incredibly desperate uh, period of history. And the first piece, the Liturgy de Cristal, um, is meant to capture this sense of unease and a sense of never-ending time. And the way that Messiaen sort of captures this unease is actually to use a little bit of mathematics. Um, in fact, he uses two numbers that are very important to my own research, um, prime numbers, so indivisible numbers. Um, so the prime numbers he uses are 17 and 29. Now, the way that he uses this, um, 
is in the piano part. Now, when the piece opens, you hear the clarinet and the violin exchanging bird themes. Um, Messiaen was very interested in bird themes, used to notate them as an inspiration as well. But it's the piano piece where the mathematical structure can be heard. Um, what it is, is a very uh, repetitive uh, piano piece. Uh, the rhythm sequence is just 17 notes uh, rhythm repeated over and over again. But the harmonic sequence is 29 chords, which are, themselves are repeated over and over again. So you have the 29 chords, and then you just repeat them again and repeat them again. But the choice of the 17 notes for the rhythm and the 29 for the harmonic sequence means that you get a very strange effect because the choice of 17 and 29 mean that these numbers don't uh, come in sync until you've heard 17 times 29 chords. So you get this sense of, uh, you can hear something repeating, but then it's sort of, when it's the rhythm starts, the harmonic sequence is still working its way through. When the harmonic sequence starts, the rhythm is halfway through its piece. Um, so uh, if you see, here's the score for the piano piece. So the 17 note rhythm sequence, you start with crotchet, 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 and then you get this syncopated rhythm until you get crotchet and then minim, and then you see the crotchet, crotchet, crotchet repeated again, and off it goes. The rhythm is exactly the same, 17 notes. But the harmonic sequence goes all the way up to this point where you see the same chords repeating. But you see when the chords are repeated again, it's a completely different rhythm structure. So it's very hard to hear what Messiaen is doing, but you certainly get a sense of there being structure there, but a huge unease as well. So let's hear the prime 17 at 29 at work in the quartet for the end of time. So that's the rhythm sequence repeating again. The harmonic sequence is still working its way through the 29 chords. And now the harmonic sequence starts repeating, but the rhythm sequence is doing something completely different. And so the choice of 17 and 29, these two primes, are chosen very deliberately by Messiaen in order to create this sense of unease and the, the things keeping out of sync. Now, I think what's interesting is that very often at the core of this, uh, um, the fact that artists and mathematicians and scientists seem to be interested in similar structures, is that in some sense we're all reacting to the natural world around us and trying to find patterns in the natural world. So you actually find this effect um, uh, at the heart of um, the survival of a very strange insect that you can find in North America. Um, it's a cicada, which has an incredibly strange life cycle. Um, there was a very big brood this summer, which appeared on the East Coast. Um, it was, uh, but they hadn't been seen for 17 years, because what these cicadas do is that um, there are the eggs in the ground, and then uh, the, the eggs uh, produce these cicadas. They emerge into the forest. Um, they eat the leaves. They, they mate. They lay eggs. Um, so actually, this is the sound of one of these cicadas. The sound is so loud um, that residents in general move out for this 17th year because it's totally unbearable. Um, people make sure they don't plan their weddings uh, while this is happening because you can't hear anything. But after six weeks of partying, the cicadas all die and the forest goes quiet again for another 17 years before the next brood, the next generation, emerges from the ground. In fact, I had a chance to go and see these um, uh, the year before last uh, in, in um, uh, 
the, uh, it, it, where was it? It was uh, Nashville, Tennessee. They had a brood there. But this wasn't a 17-year cycle. Um, this was actually a 13-year cycle. So it's very curious. There are different uh, species across America, but they only have 13 or 17-year life cycles. There are none with 12, 14, 15, 16, or 18. So two prime numbers, 13 and 17. So it's very curious. What is it about um, the primes which seems to be um, helping these cicadas in some way? Well, we're not too sure, but one theory is that it's very much the same principle as Messiaen was using to keep uh, the rhythm and the harmony out of sync in the Liturgy de Christa. Uh, because there's a belief that there might have been a predator around in the forest, which also used to appear periodically. And the predator would try and time its arrival to coincide with all of the cicadas appearing. Um, now, the cicadas, which had a non-prime number life cycle, they got wiped out because they got in sync too quickly with the predator. So, for example, I've got a little example here where the predator appears every six years and the cicada appears every nine years. So um, they have a common factor, three. Um, so that means that the predator and the cicada will meet each other um, every 18th year. So every, every second time the cicadas emerge, they meet this predator, and so they're quickly wiped out. But those cicadas which have a prime life cycle, so let's shift it, uh, let's make the cicada have a seven-year life cycle. So seven means actually it's appearing more often in the forest. So um, you might think, well, it's, it's got even more of a chance of getting wiped out. But no, because now six and seven are co-prime, seven is a prime number, it means that the cicadas keeps out of sync of this predator. So the first time they actually meet is a six times seventh year, the 42nd year. And so this prime number of years gives it a better chance of keeping out of sync and, and so surviving. So it seems like there was a, quite a competition in some of the forests in North America. The predator would move its um, uh, life cycle, get in sync. But it's, uh, the 17-year life cycle, obviously, if you know your primes, you kind of survive in this world. So it's a good message. There's an impact um, you know, uh, for you. <laughs> you know your maths, you survive. So, um, so the cicadas knew their maths, um, survived. Uh, and it seems like the predator got wiped out. It, didn't, it couldn't get into sync with the 17-year life cycle or the 13-year life cycle. But it's kind of curious. This is exactly the same trick as Messiaen is using, that the predator is a bit like the rhythm sequence and the, um, the cicada a bit like the harmonic sequence, and keeping those things out of sync gives this sense of kind of unease um, and never-ending time that, uh, um, well, almost never-ending time that Messiaen wanted. Uh, now, for me, what's intriguing is that here's Messiaen, um, uh, who's read up on a bit of mathematics and realized that it can be useful for him. But often, uh, uh, artists are being drawn to our mathematical structures um, for, without knowing it. And, and often, you can find examples where the mathematics were discovered first by artists and only subsequently realized that we're important by mathematicians. And one very interesting example of this, um, it's a very famous sequence. So um, if you're not a mathematician, what's the next number? in this sequence. You also, if you haven't read the Da Vinci Code, you're not allowed to have read the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> um, uh, but what's the next number in this sequence? 34. It's a very famous sequence uh, that uh, we, a lot of uh, kids uh, get exposed to at school. It's a lovely sequence because you get the next one by adding the two previous numbers in the sequence. Um, they're called the Fibonacci numbers. Um, uh, Fibonacci discovered them because he realized they were very much related to, to things in the natural world again, um, very much associated with growth. Um, so uh, the way that uh, things seem to grow, I mean, the numbers themselves have a natural sense of growth in them, and that seems to be also apparent 
apparent in the natural world. So, for example, um, if you count the number of petals on a flower, invariably it's a number in the Fibonacci sequence. Or sometimes you get um, uh, two copies of the flowers. So you can get double the number in the Fibonacci sequence. And if it isn't a number in the Fibonacci sequence, um, that's because a petal's fallen off your flower. <laughs> uh, which is how mathematicians get round exceptions. Um, uh, uh, but actually, uh, Fibonacci wrote about these in relation to another problem, which is if you look at um, uh, generations of rabbits um, uh, from one season to the next, um, how many rabbits do you expect um, with a particular mathematical rule? So the mathematical rule was you start with one pair of rabbits. Um, they take a, a month to mature, at which point that they can give birth to another pair of rabbits um, who then themselves take a month to mature before they can give birth to the, uh, another generation. And so the, it's quite a sort of complex problem to get your head around so, you know, oh, these ones are, um, aren't mature yet. These ones are still giving birth. Um, uh, these are very mathematical rabbits, which never die, of course, and which always give birth to a male and a female. Um, but Fibonacci realized that these numbers were, um, uh, uh, were described by, the, uh, the Fibonacci, by this uh, sequence, with, where you add the two previous generations together to get the next one. Uh, so they've been very much uh, uh, attributed to Fibonacci. But the intriguing thing is, and I only discovered this uh, quite recently when I was looking into um, the subject of Indian mathematics. I did this program about um, the history of mathematics and sort of discovered, uh, I mean, we teach our subject very ahistorically, and, and somehow you don't realize where a lot of these things come from. But actually, I discovered these Fibonacci numbers um, that uh, uh, Fibonacci wasn't the first to discover it. In fact, they were discovered already in India. Uh, by poets and musicians um, who were interested in what sort of rhythms that you can generate where you use long and short beats. Um, so if you're allowed long and short beats, so suppose you've got four beats in the bar, so uh, four short beats, and, and how many different rhythms can you make? So, well, you can do four short beats. Or you could do short, short, long, or short, long, short, or long, short, short, or long, long. So you've got five different rhythms that you can make out of these long and short beats, which was of interest to, to know what sort of different possibilities they were if you were doing poetry or creating music. And so you say, OK, if I add an extra short beat, so I've got five short beats in the bar, um, how many different rhythms can I make? Um, well, they discovered it's the, the same rule as for the Fibonacci numbers, because you add the two previous numbers together. So there are eight different rhythms. And actually, you can see why. So I think it's much more obvious in the, with these rhythms and the, for, for the rabbits, in a way. Because um, how do you get the rhythms? Well, you could take all the ones with four beats in the bar and add a short beat to those. And that gives you the, some of them. But you could also take the ones with three beats in the bar and add a long beat to those. They're all different, and they give you all the different possibilities. So it seems much more obvious why um, these numbers, these Fibonacci numbers, actually uh, count rhythms rather than sort of rabbits. Um, so actually, it was um, musicians and uh, and poets who discover these numbers first. Uh, they've written in, uh, Hamashandra writes about these numbers um, uh, before Fibonacci, and it seems even before Hamashandra, um, but you know, they really deserve to be called the Hamashandra Fibonacci numbers. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about rhythm and mathematics, and, uh, and I think that, you know, there, there's a kind of obvious connection between counting and, um, uh, and uh, mathematics. I mean, as I'm a trumpeter, I spend a lot of time in my orchestra sort of counting bars rest. You know, it seems to be all counting, 94, 2, 3, 4, 95, 2, 3, 4. Now, I, I think Leibniz kind of summed up that sort of connection between uh, the, the, the rhythms of music and, count, uh, and counting. He, he said, uh, music is a pleasure the human mind experiences from counting without being aware that it is counting. 
But actually, I think this connection between Latin music goes a lot deeper. The sort of structures that um, a musician embeds inside uh, uh, their musical composition uses a lot of uh, sort of mathematical ideas. After all, in some sense, what distinguishes music from noise? You're looking for structures and patterns and things being related to something you just heard. So, uh, and Stravinsky wrote very nicely about mathematics being so important to a composer. He wrote, the musician should find in mathematics a study as useful to him as the learning of another language is to a poet. Mathematics swims seductively just below the surface. And if you take a piece like uh, Bach's Goldberg variations, you can see Bach just playing around with combinatorial possibilities for the different variations. Each of the variations is in some sense using uh, ideas of symmetry to create something which is related but different to what you've just heard. If you move into the 20th century, you have lots of examples. Schoenberg, for example, he said, OK, well, we're going to throw away tonal music. But if you throw away structure, you need new structure to be put in place. And so he introduced this idea of the 12-tone rows and looked at it very mathematically. He would take permutations of the 12 notes of the chromatic scale and then apply symmetrical rules to these to create a palette of, of 48 12-tone rows, which he would use to compose things with. And Messiaen used to love this as well. Um, and actually, uh, in one of his pieces, he seemed to discover a, a very significant mathematical structure um, uh, by using these 12-tone rows purely from, for aesthetic reasons, but from a mathematical perspective, um, it is extremely significant in my own subject. Um, one of the, I, I had a kind of dilemma whether to choose Messiaen or um, another of my favorite 20th century musicians, which is Xenarchus. And Xenarchus was uh, extraordinarily um, uh, mathematically literate. Uh, in fact, this is a piece, Nomus Alpha, um, which is written for solo cello. Um, he dedicated to Every Scalois, amongst uh, two, to, uh, as well as two other mathematicians, who was in fact the inventor of the language that uh, I talk every day um, when I'm uh, uh, doing the, the, the subject of symmetry. Um, and in fact, there's a symmetrical object hiding behind um, the composition of this piece of music. Actually, the score I've got here isn't for Nomus Alpha; it's actually for an, um, a, another piece called Metastasis. But you can see that the, the actual this score looks like a piece of geometry, not a piece of music. Um, but I'm going to play you this. Uh, an extract from Nomus Alpha for solo cello, and I, I want to, it's actually based on a, on a three-dimensional symmetrical object, and I want you to try and hear what symmetrical object is summed up in your mind's eye by the following piece. So did anyone get a symmetrical shape appearing in their mind? A circle, a circle. interesting. A spiral. a spiral. Well, in fact, that was a cube hiding behind there. But um, I must say, even when I know that, I find it quite difficult to um, hear the cube. Um, but actually, it's a little bit unfair, because I haven't really played you enough of the piece to really get you a sense of the cube. Because what Zanarkis does um, is, you want to hear some? No. Uh, um, uh, what Zanarkis does is to put, uh, he uses the cube, and he puts m the, uh, certain musical ideas that the cello can play. So you heard the kind of pizzicato. Um, there's a, an effect where you can turn the bow over and, and hits the strings 
ends with the wooden side of the bow, the glissandi. So these are put on the eight corners of the cube. And then in each new variation, uh, what Zanakis does is a symmetry of the cube, um, which then tells him the new order in which these should be done. There's another cube which is controlling the sort of time spent on each of these items. And then using those constraints, he allows um, his creativity to take over, and then he plays within those particular constraints. So there's, it's interesting because he, uh, he uses the symmetries of the cube. There are, there are you know, you could eight factorial different ways that you could arrange each of these eight things, but, but by constraining it to the symmetries of the cube, it somehow creates a, some sort of hidden order amongst the different variations. Um, and uh, so, so that was the, the, the symmetries of the cube, which again, you, you can only I don't think Zanarkis necessarily expects you to hear the, the cube. But uh, Stravinsky used to write, you know, I, I, actually, I can only be creative under huge constraints. And I think a lot of composers love the constraints that mathematics uh, give them, in which they can find, then they can play and uh, uh, find new sort of uh, creative structures. Now, the, an interesting thing about Zanarkis as well um, is that uh, not only was he interested in mathematics and also a composer, um, but he's also an example of my, my second second uh, art that I want to turn to, which is architecture. And he actually worked on a pavilion in Brussels. And if you look at the plans for the pavilion, um, they look very much like that score for metastasis. In fact, he wrote, uh, he, he constructed this pavilion uh, alongside uh, my second choice of a secret mathematician from the world of architecture, um, which is Le Corbusier. Le Corbusier worked with uh, Zanarkis on this, um, uh, this pavilion, but um, Le Corbusier was obsessed again with mathematics. In particular, he liked this idea of the Fibonacci numbers. Um, the Fibonacci numbers were obviously embedded in the way that things grow naturally, um, so he believed that uh, you should uh, sort of mimic that in a building. And so he produced these series of numbers, um, series rouge and series bleu, which um, were used as his kind of numbers to uh, the proportions that you should find within the building. So you can see after a while, um, they settle down to the same, have this, exactly the same rule. Uh, you, you add 0.86 to 1.40 and you get uh, 2.26. So this, uh, uh, and he, he thought that these were actually related, something that goes back, of course, to Leonardo as well, that um, these uh, Fibonacci numbers are, are related to proportions in the body. Um, and this is a, an idea that goes back to Vitruvius, uh, the Roman architect, that, that a building should somehow mimic also the proportions in a body, and that's the sort of buildings that we'll love. And actually, if you use these Fibonacci numbers, one of the reasons you, they seem to appear naturally um, in things that are growing in the natural world is that um, you can use them uh, very nicely to build up a structure. So if I take, say, a one-by-one one room and add another one-by-room, one room next to that, I'll have a one-by-two room. Um, now I can add a two-by-two room, because I know about the number two now, uh, on the side of that. But now I've got a th uh, the dimension three, so I can add a three by three room. And you keep on adding these rooms, the Fibonacci, uh, corresponding to the Fibonacci numbers, and you get this uh, um, natural spiral appearing. And in fact, this um, rectangle that's uh, emerging um, is getting closer and closer to a rectangle that very many artists have found appealing, um, which is a rectangle which is in the pro uh, proportions of the golden ratio. So in the limits, this would be um, a rectangle which has this very special property that if you look at the, um, the ratio of a long side to the short side, if that's the same as the sum of the two sides to the long side, then this um, rectangle is one that we seem to find most aesthetically pleasing. Um, if I cut a, a square out of that, then what I get is um, um, a rectangle which is also um, in the golden ratio. So it's, it has a, um, a, and a lot of canvases will often have um, uh, these proportions, Leonardo 
Leonardo especially um, love these kind of proportions. Also in architecture, um, if you take something like the Parthenon, uh, the, the ancient Greeks certainly knew about the golden ratio, and it's believed that um, you can find golden ratios kind of hidden um, inside the proportions of the Parthenon. Um, and, and in fact, uh, it's, it's not only architects. Uh, there's, uh, I did a, um, an extraordinary um, thing at the Royal Opera House uh, looking at the maths behind the magic flute. And um, I discovered that the overture to the magic flute, um, uh, I don't know whether you know, there's, a, uh, there's uh, something called the triple chord, which is um, Mozart's way of embedding kind of uh, the idea of the masons inside there. And where this triple chord occurs in the overture is at exactly the moment where the golden ratio is. Um, and Messi uh, Mozart must have known about this. It's too deliberate. So it's kind of 83 bars, then you get this triple chord, um, and then 130 bars after that. Um, so I, I, there's a lot of examples of composers also putting key moments in a piece. It's, it's this kind of proportion of the golden ratio. Debussy also did it, for example. Um, but Le Corbusier loved this as well, and he felt that these uh, the series rouge and the series bleu gave rise to buildings which had this sense uh, of aesthetics inside it. Uh, one of the great examples is this one, which doesn't look um, a fantastically wonderful building from the outside, but if you look at the layout of the rooms on the inside, they're constructed according to these uh, series rouge and the series bleu. And um, uh, I, I was talking to somebody recently who knows somebody who lives here and says it's actually a beautiful building to live inside because of the way these rooms are laid out. Um, of course, uh, Le Corbusier isn't the first to use the idea of proportions being important in the way that a building is built. Um, Palladio, for example, uh, Palladio villas are so perfect in a way because he was very mathematically sensitive. He liked kind of whole number ratios rather than these uh, Fibonacci relationships. Um, and actually, it's very much related to music because if you take whole number ratios in music, um, you actually get notes with harmony on them. So here's a Palladio building, but I've got to put strings on the side and pluck them with given to the length of the rooms. So in some way, Palladio's um, buildings, are sort of, uh, they're often called frozen music because uh, the proportions inside those villas um, are actually the proportions that we respond to musically as notes with harmony, octaves and the perfect fifth. Um, and it's intriguing that if you look at uh, both Le Corbusier's um, sketchbooks and Palladio's sketchbooks, they look very much like a, a mathematician's sketchbook who is trying to find out all the different possibilities for the way a piece of geometry might work. Um, Le Corbusier loved the idea of things with asymmetry, Palladio loved symmetry, um, um, but uh, you know, here's kind of the mathematical um, uh, spirit at heart uh, at work, trying to see what different possibilities with these constraints um, you can construct buildings. Um, I mean, uh, there are other wonderful examples of, um, a, I mean, the Guggenheim in Bilbao, which is uh, a Frank Gehry building, um, is almost like a piece of Romanian geometry. Uh, Ronchamp, which is a Corbusier uh, chapel, uh, looks like a bit of um, hyperbolic geometry. And, you know, the, I think the modern skyline is full of mathematics these days. In fact, we have a project here in Oxford called mathsinthecity.com, um, where we've tried to record interesting examples of buildings with uh, mathematics hidden inside them. And, uh, um, 
if you have any examples in your own city uh, that you would like to add, it's a very interactive thing. We're trying to build up a kind of uh, um, uh, a, a sort of walking tours of the whole of the world, uh, viewing the world mathematically. Um, I mean, for one example, I think Zaha Hadid, who's uh, been uh, uh, done so many buildings recently, the, uh, the Olympics uh, in particular, um, but Zaha Hadid studied mathematics in Iraq before she became an architect here in London. Um, now, it's interesting uh, that uh, I, I think this uh, tension of the symmetry and the asymmetry, modular man, I think, is a kind of like a 20th century asymmetrical version of the Vitruvian man that Leonardo drew. And in fact, the Vitruvian man um, is a solution to an architecture problem. Vitruvius uh, left in those uh, notes he wrote about architecture um, this kind of challenge that he believed that a building could encapsulate a human body um, both uh, in a square and in a circle. Uh, and uh, a lot of artists tried to solve this, and they they would often put the square in the circle with a common center, but they could never put a person inside it. You've got these very sort of um, uh, dis uh, disproportionate uh, bodies when you stuck this in. And it was Leonardo who kind of solved this, realized you had to shift um, the center of the square down off the center of the circle. So you have different centers. The circle is centered on the belly button, um, the square somewhere else. Um, but it's interesting, I, I, I was kind of wanted in a way to choose Leonardo as my choice for my third secret mathematician from the world of the visual arts because he so captures somebody who uh, is a bridge between the sciences and the arts. He did so much uh, uh, sort of in, in, with these wonderful inventions that he made and fantastic art as well. But I went for a 20th century one as well. I sort of kept to that theme. And so my choice was a uh, visual artist for my secret mathematician was actually Salvador Dali because um, Salvador Dali's... Uh, work just seems to be just so obsessed with ideas of science and mathematics threaded through them. In fact, he once wrote, I, I'm a carnivorous fish swimming in two waters, the cold water of art and the hot water of science. Uh, and it, it, was, it said that he always used to invite scientists around to his house, and he found them much more stimulating than artists for, for generating new ideas. Um, and so you can see uh, well, there's lots of scientific ideas. Uh, there's DNA, examples of DNA sort of drawn inside the spiral of DNA. Um, relativity clearly um, inspired him with all of the sort of watches falling off and things like that. There's also a lot of mathematics. So, for example, if you take uh, the sacrament of the Last Supper, um, he, he uh, embeds that inside a dodecahedron, a symmetrical shape, actually, that Plato believed was the shape of the universe. Um, and it's intriguing because uh, this, again, harks back to um, uh, artists who were using symmetrical shapes in the Renaissance. And, in fact, the, the, sh the Artists of the Renaissance uh, were very helpful for mathematicians because um, uh, you'll see in this picture here, this is a, a portrait of uh, a mathematician, uh, Lucia Pacioli. Um, and you can see the dodecahedron again on the uh, table here. But then there's another extraordinary symmetrical object in the top um, left-hand corner, which is a, is a sort of glass um, uh, structure, and you, I think it's got a sort of filled, half filled with water as well. And this is um, a structure that's made out of uh, squares and triangles. It's uh, actually called a rhombid cubo octahedron. Um, and it's an example of um, an Archimedean solid. Um, now, you, you might have heard of uh, platonic solids. There are these five platonic solids which make um, good dice uh, the cube, the dodecahedron, and three others. Um, but Archimedes has discovered that actually, if you um, don't stick to the faces all being the same 
same symmetrical shape. So a square, a cube obviously has um, six squares, but if you take something like a football, uh, the classic football that you kick around on a Sunday, that's made out of pentagons and hexagons. They all have the same length of edge, but you've got different shapes. But they're all arranged symmetrically on the side of that shape. So the challenge was, well, how many other different shapes are there? And Archimedes discovered that there were 14 different shapes, including this rhombicube of octahedron. Um, but his description of them was lost in antiquity. And it wasn't until the Renaissance that we kind of recovered what those 14 shapes were. And I think it is in part thanks to um, the artists who were working at the time with perspective that this was the real challenge for them. You know, can they draw uh, these objects and, and sort of bring them alive? And Leonardo, in, in particular, he illustrated a book by Pacioli and um, uh, gives rise to lots of different examples of these. So, so I think here you see the artists and the scientists sort of helping each other um, in, in recovering uh, the, what these 14 actually were. Um, but Dali wasn't interested just in these very classical shapes. He was interested in shapes, so these kind of modern shapes appearing in the 20th century. Um, so it's an amazing picture, the visage of war, um, which pictures a skull, and then inside each of the sockets, the eye sockets and the mouth, you have another skull, and inside there, the holes in there, you've got another skull. And so you have this infinite regress. Um, this is actually an example of a Sipinski gasket, um, a, a fractal with this infinite... Um, sort of complexity and never gets simpler as you go further and further inside the, build, uh, inside the picture. Um, and the fact there was another artist, Dali was doing this very deliberately, there was another very famous 20th century artist who, who was drawn to fractals but totally um, intuitively. Um, and this is Jackson Pollock. Uh, now Jackson Pollock's paintings, uh, uh, I mean, he ha I think he's now been beaten now, but he held the record for the, the, the painting which sold for the most amount of money in history. Um, but uh, a lot of people said at the time, well, come on, my, my, my two 10-year-old twins could make this. They just scatter a load of paint and you can make a Pollock. Um, so what is it that Pollock was doing that was so special um, compared to what uh, you know, your, your kids or might do with a pot of paint? Well, it turns out that what he was doing was something, was something very special. He, in fact, you can use a bit of mathematics to discover... Uh, people started trying to fake Pollocks because if they're worth so much money and you just need to scatter a bit of paint around. Um, uh, but... Actually, it's quite difficult to fake a Pollock because a Pollock has a very special property, this, this idea of a fractal, that if you zoom in on a fractal, you, 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 the, it doesn't get simpler. The complexity remains. So I've actually taken four different regions from one of Jackson Pollock's paintings. Um, one of them is the painting itself, and the other three are zoomed in portions of that painting. Now, I think you can probably tell that the top... Uh, right-hand corner is the most zoomed-in one. But amongst the other three, I think it's pretty difficult to tell which is the original and which is a zoomed-in region of it. And so this has uh, been used, uh, the fact that um, if you look at the way the paint's uh, put on the canvas, it's possible to distinguish quite a lot of fakes that don't have this um, particular property. The reason uh, Jackson Pollock was able to do this cause, uh, is because the fractal is kind of the geometry of chaos. And the way that Pollock painted was very chaotic, I mean, in a mathematical sense. Um, so he was uh, apparently had incredibly bad balance, um, and he used to often paint when he was drunk. So the combination was that, um, that in fact, he created a chaotic pendulum, um, because a pen, you know, if, if, we, if I was splattering paint, actually, I would have this as a fixed point, and I would create a lot of regularity. But because Pollock was sort of uh, not able to balance particularly, um, the pivot here was moving all the time, and he created this uh, kind of chaotic pendulum, 
which when you look at the geometry that's associated with that is this kind of fractal shape. So in fact, there is a way to fake a Pollock, which is to set up um, a pot of paint on a string and then uh, push, you know, uh, make sure the, the top of the string is being pushed every now and again. You create a chaotic pendulum. So we actually did this in one of the BBC programs that I made. Um, so this is uh, uh, toy number one. Um, <laughs> Uh, we haven't quite perfected it. I didn't get anything on eBay for this, so, um, uh, but I'm still working on it. So, um, uh, but Pollock also, uh, um, so Pollock, what's interesting, uh, we went to his studio, and um, his studio uh, is in Long Island. It's um, surrounded by all of these very fractal-like trees. We went in the winter, and um, uh, you could see that he was sort of responding to the natural world around him, because those trees have this fractal branching property. And you can see, you can even measure um, Pollock's kind of periods because of their sort of fractal dimension. And, and he, he focuses in on a particular sort of fractal that is the one that is most resonant with, with the fractals in nature. Um, now, uh, I'm going to come back to Dali because there are other examples of Dali's pictures where he was interested in geometry, not that you can see around us in the physical world, but actually sort of uh, beyond our physical world. So um, he was very interested in four-dimensional geometry. And here's an example of um, a crucifixion. So he was a very spiritual man as well. Um, so the idea of the fourth dimension was great for him, it was something that transcended the physical world. For somehow the fourth dimension had a spiritual side to it. Um, so he did this crucifixion on a... Uh, so this is actually a four-dimensional cube unwrapped into three dimensions. Um, so if you think about how you would make um, a three-dimensional cube out of a piece of paper, um, you would have six squares that you would uh, cut out in a cross shape, and then you would fold them up, and you can make your cube. Well, it's the same principle at work here, because this is um, eight uh, three-dimensional cubes stacked four on top of each other and four around the side. If you were living in four dimensions, you'd be able to wrap this net, this three-dimensional net up, to make a four-dimensional cube. Now, obviously, we're not in four dimensions, but you can still see the unwrapped four-dimensional cube, which is this two interlocking sort of uh, cross shapes. So for Dali, this was wonderful. There's this idea of the Christ being crucified on this um, four-dimensional cross unwrapped, cube unwrapped into three dimensions. And the idea of the fourth dimension was also very fascinating for my fourth secret mathematician, who comes from the world of literature. Now, I think literature is a little harder to find sort of connections between mathematics and, um, and sort of works of literature, although I suppose poetry is a very obvious place to look. Um, but um, uh, uh, Borges, I think, is a, a great example of somebody who is again stimulated by the ideas of uh, mathematics in the sort of short stories that he wrote. And there's one in particular that I, I really love, which is called um, The Library of Babel. It's a, if you haven't read it, I really recommend it. It's only 10 pages long, but um, uh, in this story, he's really sort of exploring the ideas of paradox, of infinity, the shape of space, um, and actually he's asking questions that uh, were really intriguing uh, scientists in the 20th century at the same time. So this is how the piece opens. He describes um, this library. So there's a librarian who's in this library. Um, he's uh, trying to find out what the shape of his library is. Uh, he describes the universe, which others call the library. It's composed of an infinite, uh, of an indefinite and perhaps infinite number of hexagonal galleries. From any one of the galleries, uh, you, one can see internally the upper and lower floors. So uh, it actually looks like a beehive, um, all of these rooms, and they're kind of layers of the beehive, one on top of the other. And the librarian, through the short story, uh, sort of starts to explore and tries to understand, well, um, does this library go on forever? Is it infinite? Could he ever know that? Um, or, or is it finite? Uh, but how would that work? Uh, uh, and by the end, he actually comes up with a solution. I, I venture to suggest this solution to the ancient problem. The library is unlimited, 
and cyclical. If an eternal traveller were to cross it in any direction, after centuries, he would see the same volumes repeated in the same disorder. And it's very intriguing because his solution is actually one of the solutions that we think uh, may be the shape of our universe. If you think about our universe, well, you know, is the universe infinite? Does it have a shape? Um, is it finite? Um, uh, well, it's kind of funny if it were finite. How does that work? Because, um, well, the ancient Greeks, you know, used to think it was somehow enclosed in some sort of glass ball. The stars are on there. But then what's on the other side of that? You know, are we living in the Truman Show with a camera crew sort of looking in on us? Um, often I do feel like that. But, um, uh, but, but the interesting thing is um, sort of Borges came up with a solution that mathematicians came up with as well, because um, um, here's a, a universe. This is a smaller universe than our universe. It's a two-dimensional universe. So some of you may have played... The, anyone played Asteroids in there? Yes, all the old people putting on their hands. My son would not be seen dead playing this game. Um, uh, but it's a very beautiful illustration of how a finite universe... So the universe is um, just on the computer screen. It's finite. But it's unlimited. It doesn't have any walls. It's not the Truman Show. When you go off the left-hand side of the screen, you reappear on the right-hand side. And if you go off the top of the screen, you reappear at the bottom. So it feels like this thing is just going on and on and on. But of course, it's finite. Uh, so this is rather like um, the description uh, that the librarian uh, arrives at at the end of the Library of Babel. Uh, and the reason is that you know, this does have a shape. It's, in fact, um, the universe is in the shape of a torus or, or, or a bagel or a donut. Um, so when you go off the top of the screen, what you're doing is actually going round the torus uh, in, in, inside and back round again. If you go off to the left, you're going round the outside. Now, in fact, we can illustrate this. The top and the bottom of the screen are essentially the same. You join them up, you go round. And the left and the right-hand side of the screens are also the same. So you can join those up. And what you get is this bagel-shaped um, universe. Um, well, we live in a three-dimensional universe. The librarian in the Library of Babel is in a three-dimensional universe. So, so what's happening there? Um, well, it could be the same sort of thing, actually, because, uh, you know, suppose this is our universe. We've had the Big Bang, and it's got to this size, and there's nothing outside this lecture theatre. Um, in fact, the rules of this lecture theatre are um, uh, rather similar to this. So if you go out the, um, the uh, right-hand side of the lecture theatre, you reappear at the left. So when you go out there, you just come out here. Um, when you go out the top of the building, uh, top of the ceiling, you come in through the floor, and then we've got another direction. So that's like the game of asteroids. Um, and so when you go out the screen here, you reappear at the back of the lecture theatre. Uh, Sam said that we've embedded mathematics in this building. You, you might find that uh, I can't get out of this lecture theatre. So that's what we want for our undergraduates. Yes. So, um, uh, but uh, so actually, what does this universe look like? Because it's very strange, because the light which is going out the back of my head is going through the screen here and then reappearing at the back of the lecture theatre. So actually, I can see the back of my head um, over there and then another copy of me and another copy of me. So actually, this universe um, is finite, but it doesn't have any walls that you bounce off. And this is what the universe looks like. Um, and, and this is a, a, a potential shape for our universe. If the universe is finite, but with no walls, then it could be what, I mean, you, again, if I put this in four dimensions, I could wrap it up and, and make a, a torus in four dimensions or a bagel in four dimensions. And in some sense, that's the solution that Borges comes to, that the library made out of these hexagons going on um, internally up and down, left and right, um, that it's 
you come back, whenever you go off, you come back to where you started at. And uh, so this is one solution, but it's actually at the heart of one of the great mathematical theorems um, that was proved in the last decade. The Poincaré conjecture, which some of you might have read about in the newspaper, proved a few years ago by um, a, a Russian mathematician, Grigory Perlman, um, who uh, was awarded our no version of the Nobel Prize, the Fields Medal, and um, he also it was a, a, one of the m millennium problems. It was one of the million-dollar problems. Um, uh, what he did was actually to, to make a list of all the possible shapes that the universe could be wrapped up in. I've given you one, but there are other possibilities. What are those possibilities? So that question that Borges was asking, okay, what is the shape of the Library of Babel, is actually at the heart of one of the problems that is one of the, the, the great problems that have been solved in, in the last um, century, really. And in fact, uh, the Library of Babel was uh, an inspiration for a project that I did um, uh, where I... I, I, I because of this connection between mathematics and the arts, I get asked a lot to go and work with composers or choreographers um, to try and give them interesting ideas of new structures that might, might help them in their creative process. And so I ended up uh, actually working on, um, it's called the 19th Step, actually, after another uh, Borges um, uh, story. Uh, um, but we, we were inspired by this idea of the Library of Babel. Um, and, and so uh, it was a piece of choreography which I ended up actually performing in. Um, so uh, this is a, I'll show you a little bit of this. This is um, uh, me dancing the uh, ruler and compass construction of a hexagon, followed by um, a, a proof of the irrationality of um, the square root of three. That's, uh, <laughs> I think that's enough of that. Um, uh, um, uh, I think I must be a first for mathematics and dance, actually. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but actually, it was during that project that I learned about my fifth and final secret mathematician who comes from the world of choreography. Um, because I think choreography is a great example of sort of geometry in motion. And very often when a choreographer is trying to... Uh, it's quite an abstract world as well. And so, for example, Rudolf Larbin, who's my choice of a secret mathematician from the world of choreography, really developed a very mathematical language in, in order to be able to articulate what was happening in a piece of choreography. And he also used to make his dancers um, try and give them a sense of the geometry around them. So he would always ask the dancer to think of the three-dimensional shape that was surrounding them, rather like a sort of three-dimensional version of Vitruvian man, in a way. So he said, man is inclined to follow the connecting lines of the 12 corner points of an icosahedron, with its movements traveling, as it were, along an invisible network of paths. And so you can really tell when somebody's been trained in uh, Laban's style of dance, because they have this very... You can see almost the shape emerging as they move their, their limbs. Um. Uh, now, actually, the project that I did, um, that piece of choreography, has grown and has actually become a piece of theatre. So if you want to see the current uh, um, version of, of this thing inspired by the Library of Babel, it's actually um, something I'm starting on working on next week, but it will be on at the Science Museum. It's become a piece of theatre, um, working with an actress from Complicite called X and Y. Um, so I play X and um, my uh, Victoria Gould plays Y. But that, that's on at the Science Museum from the 10th of October to the 16th of October, and then it's going to the Manchester Science Festival um, after that. So um, if you want to see well, the current state of this uh, collaboration between art and mathematics, um, then head along to the Science Museum. 
Now, I talked a lot about the way that artists uh, use mathematical structures in their work, sometimes deliberately, sometimes uh, drawn to it uh, intuitively. Um, but I think that it works the other way around as well, because I believe that mathematics is equally as creative a process as the, the act of um, creating something in these artistic disciplines. One of the books that my teacher, when I was at school, recommended that I read that made me fall in love with mathematics and realized that it was a bridge, in a way, between these two worlds of art and science. Um, um, was a book by G.H. Hardy called A Mathematician's Apology. And in that book, he really describes what it's like to be a mathematician. He says, a mathematician, like a painter or a poet, uh, is a maker of patterns. I'm only interested in mathematics as a creative art. And uh, actually, Henry James, uh, 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 Graham Greene wrote that uh, this book was the best description of being a creative artist after Henry James's diaries. Um, and... Uh, and I think that uh, very often what motivates us as a mathematician um, is not the utility of our subject. Um, uh, Sam's described how we're having to, at the moment, tell the government what the impact of our work is. And certainly we have extraordinary impact on, on um, the world around us. But I don't think that's the motivation for, for most mathematicians uh, in, in this department. I think that we're just uh, intrigued by discovering new interesting structures, things that move us. Uh, when I try and create a new piece of mathematics. I, I want to, to, and I present it you know, at a lecture here uh, to my fellow mathematicians, I, I want to surprise them. I want to take them on a journey to tell a story and, and to, to show them something they've never seen before. Um, and I think, you know, if you take, uh, here's a particular example, one of my favorite little theorems from number theory uh, due to Fermat. Um, uh, this is like a wonderful piece of music, the proof of this um, fact. Um, so Fermat proved that if you take a prime and you divide it by four and it has remained a one. So for example, 41 is a prime. I divide it by four, I get remainder one. Uh, Fermat proved you can always write that as two square numbers added together. So 41 is four squared plus five squared. Now there are infinitely many of these primes which have remainder one on division by four. And absolutely extraordinarily, you can always prove that they can be written as square numbers. Now that, for me, is absolutely extraordinary. What a surprise. What on earth have the prime numbers got to do with these two square numbers? And so as you read the proof, it's like two sort of musical themes which seem to have nothing to do with each other, or two characters. And then you see them gradually through the story or through the proof um, changing, mutating, until you suddenly realize, no, they're two sides of the same equation. And, and it's that sense of surprise that these two things are connected which makes this such a beautiful kind of mathematical result. And I think it's that which motivates us when we're... When we're trying to choose what mathematics. I think there is a lot of choice. I, here's one of my mathematical theorems, which we're talking about in our, my impact report uh, to the government. Um, I don't think this will be particularly uh, useful for anything. I don't know. That wasn't my motivation. What motivated me about this was a discovery. I mean, I don't expect you to understand everything that's up here. Um, uh, but what I discovered was a, a new symmetrical object um, which had very surprising properties. Um, surprising properties connected to something completely different to, to where the symmetrical object was somehow created. It's, um, the, in, inside this symmetry were questions about solving equations called elliptic curves. Actually, one of the other millennium problems, these million dollar problems, is about solving equations like y squared equals x cubed minus x. Can you find two numbers um, which, which uh, uh, satisfy that equation? Now, what, I, can, I could get a computer to churn out 
um, new descriptions of symmetrical objects and just uh, run the thing. I can get a computer to churn out new mathematics. But that's not mathematics. That's like the monkey at the typewriter writing um, uh, you know, just, just random words, uh, uh, combining them. The, the act of a mathematician is to, to be involved in the creative process, to make a choice about what is exciting to talk about. The drama involved in actually showing that these two things which look totally different are actually related. Um, and so I think that's the motivation for the mathematician. And often those things will have an impact then on the physical world around us because what we respond to are things which are those structures which are sort of hidden in the, in the natural world. I'm going to end with a quote. Um, I want you to think, is this a quote by uh, an artist or is it a quote by a scientist? Um, to create consists precisely in not making useless combinations. Invention is discernment, choice. The sterile combinations do not even present themselves to the mind of the inventor. Now, put your hand up if you think that that's an artist talking about their creative process. How many people think that's an artist talking about? A few votes. Yeah, yeah, OK. Uh, how many think it's a scientist talking about what they do? Um, that got a few more for a scientist. Uh, how many people are not really sure? It could be either. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, you see, I, I hope to put you in that sort of category now because it's sort of like, okay, I'm not quite sure now. What, um, uh, maybe the word inventor gave it away because uh, that's not usually a word that's um, associated with the creative arts. So it was, in fact, Henri Poincaré who was um, asked this question about what the shape of the universe could be in a way. Um, but actually, Stravinsky used to call himself an inventor. Um, he, he used to think he was inventing his pieces of music. Um, but I think it really is uh, that connection that mathematics is this beautiful bridge because it has that creativity, yet it is to try and describe the, the physical world. And uh, I think in the end, I sort of did end up being both uh, um, on the artistic side and the scientific side. And I found that it was mathematics that my, was my way to, to unite these two. Thank you.